Colin, and welcome to the Metal Cell Podcast. Good to have you, man. Thanks very much, Richie. It's great to be here. How is Cork treating you? I heard you moved. I moved here only in September, only a couple of months ago now, five, six months. Best decision I ever made in my life. Really? Um, really feel like part of a community that I didn't have in Clamell, in Tipperary, because it's just obviously a much smaller town. Um, passionate people, but not enough people to form a good scene. And I knew then that the skills that I had based upon being in bands and in a managerial sense that I could apply them to some stuff down here and it seems to be working. Um, yeah. Being here with yourself is evidence of that, obviously. So all is good. Yeah. And you've made some good contacts as well. Yeah, really. And everything's growing more and more, you know, so um, strength in numbers type of thing. What about um, Tipperary and such as kind of music scene there at the moment? Is there a lot of people like yourself moving out of there or have yeah. they... There have been over the years. It's always, I'm kind of one of the last of our group that was still in Clomel, kind of stubborn. And, you know, we, we've done a lot of great things in Clomel. We had a festival there called Belly Bang. I'd be good friends with Stephen from Crowbrat Chicken. Okay. So obviously he's still based there, but they travel all over the country. And anybody else that was there, Pancho and Tom from Zora, they've all moved. Where, actually, where have they moved to? Tom has moved to Mullingar. That's where his missus is from. So he set up shop there for the meantime. Um, probably in the long run, and Pancho moved up to his girlfriend up in Drada. Jesus, but Pancho's, well, yeah, well, Pancho's well. mad. He'll drive all over the country every week working. Um, so distance is is nothing to him really, you know. And Alan is based in Dublin and yeah. living in Dublin as well. Yeah, he's always been um, from Rush, and he's living in Scaries. But we all travel back to Tipperary for practice, and we still practice in Tom's parents' um, garage at the side of the house. Jesus, we we were mad. even there on Sunday, so we all travel all over the country in terrible weather to play um, heavy metal, and he's. Um, you know, semi-retired parents are still happy with it. So I don't know how that one's working, but they're saints. They're second parents, so we're we're looking in that regard. But Tipperary, the people there, obviously, as history goes, incredibly passionate people, like all of the Irish people. But there's just not enough of an infrastructure there in terms of having a city that you could um, you know, base actively running gigs that are reoccurring. It's just hard to generate momentum things go, get going good and then one or two kind of key members of that thing leave because it's a natural time to leave a small town if you've got big wings and then it kind of comes apart at the seams which is unfortunate and it's a hard pill to swallow because you're very proud of where you're from obviously but um yeah cork isn't so far away so we'll, we'll no, no, new cork, home. no cork accent yet not Just yet i do find in work though sometimes um it comes out because i'm trying to you know, just fit in, I suppose. <laughs> a debt. Going back to Tipperary, um, I was amazed at the amount of musical talent that came out of Tip. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong, not judging you, but I mean, just even from Metal Alone and, as you said, the Crow Black Chicken guys as well. How did that start? As in, how come you all kind of, it was kind of a generation thing, really, because you, you kind of are roughly around the same age. Yeah, we all went to school together everything, yeah, yeah. So you all know each other from school, but like, how did you, did you teach yourselves? Or was there one guy in particular that knew guitar that you went to, got lessons and stuff? Or how, like, in such a small community, it was just unusual that so many great musicians came out of there. Could you tell us about that? I'd say the cider, (laughs) a big part of it. Um, I think it's a combination of things. It's obviously just from my perspective, there's a certain wildness in um, that part. You're in a, you're in a valley there's just a certain type of person there. Um, it, I don't know, there's an independence in the people there that for myself, for guitar, I was just like, I'm just going to learn how to play guitar. And 
I just went and did it, you know, and it took years and I'm still learning how to play guitar. When with Stephen and Jeff, who's the drummer from Crowbat Chicken, we were all like that. We were all just playing Seek and Destroy by Metallica and, you know, trying to spur each other on and we'd record funny songs. I remember Stephen, more so affectionately known as McGrath, he had um his grandparents' old house on his parents' farmland and it was um derelict at the time. And we just go out there and we just get drunk and just write some songs, funny songs, kind of. We learned how to be musicians by ha- taking the piss. Yeah. And then we kind of realized, wait a minute, we're musicians now. We know how to record. We know how to play music. Why don't we get a little bit more serious about it and come at it as artists rather than drunken young lads that are kind of, um, you know, not admitting that they're actually artists. You know what I mean? Because it's maybe a dirty word when you're from a rural enough town. And what, what town was that? Clamell. Okay. So it would be a b- the biggest inland town in Ireland would be the yeah, claim to fame. It, it, but yeah. still a small place, you know, and... um. For our generation, like not not a lot of opportunity in terms of creating an infrastructure of for creative people, you know, it's yeah. it's very much pub bands and. But GA like it all, it all, yeah. But it, um, from what I can remember, Clamell always had a kind of a good reputation for music. Anyway, live music. Yeah, you know, we had a place called the Piper Inn. Christy Moore lived there for a couple of years, as far as I know. So it's you know, it's seen its fair share of creative people come through there. Um, the Piper Inn was the mecca. Um, it's still a sore spot now for us today because it closed a couple of years ago. The owner, Paul that. White, he's the patron saint of all of us as bands, you know. It, when we all look back in 20 or 30 years, we'll all have him to thank. Because he gave you your first gig or whatever, is it? He yeah. gave us our first gig when we shouldn't have even been in a pub. And then he came out and gave us four or 500 quid into our hands afterwards, which was like a million quid to us at the time, you know. Even now it's hard to get paid that much if you travel to another country to play a gig, let alone yeah. just playing in your hometown. But... um. You know, it had the old... Clumhill is obviously a, a town that was laid... Sea, it was under siege by Cromwell. And it's it was a big history there because a big town wall and the piper. There's a well that was part of the wall, so it's a protected building. The drum riser was over the well. Okay. So there's a real yeah. romantic history yeah. to it there as well. And I think that rebellious spirit around there and care and places like that, I think that's in the music, you know. It's a very... It's very politically fueled without being on the nose about it, you know. It's kind of more... Like Zora might be a little bit more esoteric with it sometimes, and Crowbat Chicken a little bit more bluesy in terms of the lyrical content. But really, it's it still comes through the music. Still comes through the music. Yeah, right, There's yeah. that you know we'll stand for what's right. Um, so what was the young Colin into? What, what was his influences? I think, funnily enough, today is the day that um, the singer of the Prodigy died. You know, yeah, um, very sad, obviously, but. It made me think today because I knew we were doing this and I knew it'd be questions like your past would come up. And I think Firestarter was where it started for me in a lot of ways because that was a very alternative song. Yeah. I remember seeing it and the video of Keith in the tunnel and the lyrics, obviously. And, you know, you've got that. I think people are naturally born and you're. I have theories myself on who we are and where we come from. That might be a little bit mad, you know, but I think. You you are who you are in a lot of ways, and then as you're growing older, you see things that resemble something that's inside you that you don't quite understand. That fire, you know, that's in us Irish people anyway. Mm-hmm. So I remember seeing Firestarter and thinking, oh, I can, I like that, but I'm not allowed like that kind of thing because I'm too young. And then Corn and Slipknot and System of a Down would have been the bands when I was young okay, that so really broke me into that okay alternative thing. And from there it was Slayer, and then from there it was. But how how were you getting that music actually? Um, I think at the time, I remember seeing My Plague by Slipknot on Scuzz in my friend's house. Oh, Scuzz, yeah. When we were kind of skaters, you know, 15, okay. 16. I remember seeing My Plague. And it was 
metal was just always uncool. It's getting better now, but it was uncool and it was something you'd be bullied for and nobody as a young person naturally wants to be bullied. So you you kind of are reluctant to get into something that you know you're going to get stick for. And My Plague by Slipknot was certainly the thing you'd get yeah. stick for. But um, it just resonated and you just can't, you can't deny that eventually. And um, then it becomes a badge of honor like it is for most metalers. Um, so that so, was kind of so you had your like what was your first guitar? How did you come across that? Uh, but my best best friend, um, Keen Conti, he got given a guitar like a strat copy. I'm not even sure to make back when we were maybe 16, 17, and it was kind of a year or two after I'd gotten into it, and I kind of fancied getting into playing music. Um, and I think I'd gotten a bass, and that was the first thing I started learning. And then he got the guitar, and I was kind of jealous that he had a guitar. <sighs> But he wasn't really into it, so he gave it to me. And then um, I took it out to the garage and I got my father's jigsaw and I tried to turn it into the most metal-looking guitar by taking lumps out of it and making it. I tried to turn it into an Iceman-style guitar from modelled after um, Darren from System of a Down, sprayed it completely silver with car spray, ruined it. <laughs> but I loved it, you know, it was the thing. But I, you couldn't obviously play it afterwards. But that was the first guitar and... From there, I think it was just a matter of getting into it, and I, I spent like my first paycheck for my first job on getting a Viper, an LTD, and that served me for 10 years until I eventually got a custom build. But um, yeah, humble beginnings. Yeah. Just kind of a hand-me-down that wasn't being used, that was in an attic, that um, you got to be creative with enough to know that it was there was something there to go with, you know? And were the Crowback Chicken lads kind of getting to know their instruments then or, or how was that kind of running was it running parna- parallel was there a few of you kind of just kind of going right we, we you know we need to kind of do something now get in a band or yeah there was i was i'm envious of the lads to this day because they decided to go down the route of getting taught how to play music properly and that served them well um because you know they're they're well-read musicians so to speak and i'm kind of just a guy that does it by ear and by feeling but there was a jazz teacher called cl faby chris faby um, he's from Chicago and he's moved back there since, but he was the music instructor in the town and he was a real well-taught jazz musician. So he got Stephen and Jev into jazz and they just started flourishing and they went from being into punk and rock and grunge and they turned into jazz. And I remember we all went to college at the same time and we'd be sitting there watching Art Blakely videos <laughs> all night long, just drinking cans and the girlfriends are like what is this shit, you know? And we're just like, listen, the hog talks. And, you know, I, I just remember all those tunes. But it was really helping us as musicians because to this day, the sensibility you learn from listening to things outside of your teenage yeah. kind of um, mind, you know, it informs you a lot. And then later in life, you realize, ah, oh, that matured us as musicians, even in just terms of listening to that stuff. So the lads have a big jazz background in their playing. And then obviously they met Christy from Cork. And it turned into Corpat Chicken, yeah. which is this jazzy, bluesy, rocky um, amalgamation of all of those influences. But so that's their bedrock, really. Yeah, you know, it is. Yeah, the tuition they got from Chris Fabi. So I'm just wondering then about uh, Reverend, that band. Were, had you anything to do with them? Or yeah. Um, okay. That was my first band with Dave Fogarty. We, um, he was in a band with a guy that lives in Cork now, Paul Lonergan, and a couple of others. They were called Within. And they were the metal band... They were a big part, actually, along with my play by Slipknot and so on, that there was an art centre in town and they used to practice upstairs, but it had big windows all along, so you could hear it from the street, and it was right across from the courthouse. So on a Sunday, we'd be skating around town drinking bottles of Fanta or whatever you do, and we'd hear this metal, so we used to just sit outside listening. And one day they poked our heads out and they were like, do you want to come up and listen? And I remember just going up and 
seeing all these amps set up in the room and the drums and these guys were maybe five six years older than us so they were in their early 20s and we were in our mid-teens so they were adults as far as we were we were concerned and we were playing at the time it sounded really heavy when you look back now not as heavy as it felt but um i remember just seeing them step on distortion pedals and the sound changing and i was like what's happening here i need to be doing this so i became friends with them and i was kind of the young guy in their group for a while um and me and dave just kind of paired up and started writing some music and then within kind of fell apart so you know it kind of more morphed into revenant because niall was a drummer within as well and we got martin on bass and then i learned how to play guitar a bit better because we couldn't find a guitarist whereas originally i was going to be the bass player so it just kind of came together like that you know it just kind of happened okay as things do at that age um yeah learned so much about music there so did you did you do a few gigs or yeah we played a lot of gigs I don't know why we changed the name. I think at the time, MySpace and things like that were becoming very popular. So I think it was kind of a stupid thing that all bands got trapped into searching for other bands named Revenant or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you see one band in America that has the name Revenant. And you're like, we That's can't, it. We we're, can't we're going to be famous someday. So this is going to become a problem. So we got to change the name. So, so you y- change the name. And then like once you start doing things like that, I think you start weakening the foundation of a band, you know, um, but you don't know that at the time. You just make mistakes and learn yeah. from them, obviously. And did that lead you on then to uh, Thoughts of Rune? Yeah, Thoughts of Rune is pretty much the same band, you know. Okay. We, had, we had Brendan, um, the singer, in Revenant as well, but um, we changed the name. I remember we went to France to record an album, which was a big thing for an Irish band at the time, and we just released the 10-year anniversary of it now. I, I heard it. It's absolutely brilliant. I mean... We were kids, I just I yeah. was listening to it on Spotify, and it sounds so good now, even. It yeah. just... Jesus. It's down to Charles Masabo, um, more commonly known as Callahan or Cal. He is a producer in France. Dave got in touch. Dave was always good like that, getting in touch with people that maybe shouldn't have been talking to, like a couple of young chancers in Ireland, but he didn't know that until we got there, you know? And then he, he realized who he was dealing with, but he did so well to help us learn how to record in a professional environment. But I just want to go back there, just kind of skipped. So he, he needed, he, he had enough for an album or an EP or Oh yeah, we had the album. We, we'd been writing an album and Dave got in touch with him because he was a fan of a lot of French bands. There was this thing happening. It was it was like the next wave after new metal. But France is an interesting country because they can they seem to contain a lot of their music within France. Okay. And you can have a very successful career as a metal musician like Playmo and Watcha and bands like that, which were, they were like a progression from new metal, but they were still very new metal. And you can hear elements of that in mm. Revenant and Thoughts Rune and like Fear Factory and things like that were bleeding in and Opet even later on. So we had the album written and he got in touch with him and we were going to France to record an album apparently. And, and how did you get over? Did you ferry across? Or? No, we flew over. Oh, and real flew rock stars. Into, yeah, I flew into the south of France, got collected from the airport and went to this small place called saint Gulf, which was kind of one of those small towns along the French Riviera where old people go to get tanned and die. <laughs> so like all of a sudden there's like five really malnourished, White. unhealthy, translucent almost Irish men, like boys walking around this sleepy beautiful french riviera town trying to find an off license yeah <laughs> you know so um yeah in this like studio that was owned by a guy whose dad was pretty much the equivalent of the hilton you know he owned a chain of hotels in okay. france that were like the equivalent of the hiltons mm-hmm. in america kind of thing so crazy rich like i remember him bringing us out near the end and just like splashing money on drinks and we were Irish. We were like, keep them coming, you know. Yeah. Um, just a, like, just another world. Like, and a character th- probably as well. Yeah, yeah, an absolute character. As was the producer, Cal. I mean, I've he that man taught me so much in two weeks over there. Um, I have a lot to uh, to thank him for, you know okay. what I mean? 
And um, what was the budget or how did you figure that one out? Or? It's hard to remember. I know it was a, a good few thousand, you know. Um, at the time we were all working, this was back, this was 10 years ago, 11, 10, 11, 12 years ago really when we recorded it. 2007. Yeah, so I mean, I was working well. I was getting paid more then than I am now, you know. Thing, it was just easy to work back then. In okay. It was like that fake um, era of the Celtic Tiger where yeah. everybody was buying two cars and money didn't seem like an object. So it, it was never a problem at the time. It was just a week's pay from everyone okay. in the kitty and we were going to France kind okay. of thing. Cool. Yeah. So how did you get a press then and how did you distribute it or what was the reaction or when we came back we knew we had something cool so we got really good artwork done by um Damn Engine is the artist's name. I'm not sure. I know he's a Dutch guy. It's an amazing front cover, yeah. They look great, but we saw him at the time. Do you remember Job for a Cowboy? Yeah. Oh remember yeah. when they came out, they yeah. just kinda hit things and they were this new it was the first era of internet bands becoming very popular. Yes. So we saw that album cover and I remember just, I, I'm the art guy, so I, I'm always like in charge of that stuff. Okay. So I traced down, or tracked down the artist, got in touch, um, I think he budgeted maybe a thousand quid to do all the art, the booklet and everything, which isn't bad, you know, okay. even by today's standards. But all that stuff, you know, recording it in France, it's like, we even then we knew we need to give this its due in terms of the visual side of things. It was before the digital era, so putting it up on Spotify and that wasn't there, which is why we've done the re-release yeah. for it now. Um, Ian Lawless from Underground Movement, an Irish label no, I don't think they're still going if they are they're just kind of going and selling okay. stock um, he got in touch with us I don't know where he heard it. I think maybe we sent it into Metal Hammer for a review something like that and um, through that channel he got wind of it and he got in touch with us and he was impressed that did Metal Solid Hammer review it yeah I don't know if Metal Hammer okay. reviewed it at the time I think we might have got into a few little things okay. but we were kids like we were so wet behind the ears even today it's hard to know how to navigate that landscape you know the, the media side of the metal world it's yeah. kind of a weird one but like if anybody who actually takes the time to check it out and um we'll put up a link afterwards just the, the whole package the artwork the sound everything is just top quality i mean kudos you know yeah it's cool you know it's cool to have that because then i think what it did for me anyway it put it set a, a, a bar in my mind as you you know you're never going to go back the way as a creative person if you are that's the road to depression you know so it set the bar high yeah and ever since then I'm always trying to exceed that bar. Okay. So it was great for that. Like uh, two weeks, like those two weeks were like, I don't know, four years doing a degree in whatever your, yeah, your thing is. Experience. Yeah. yeah. The experience is just, they're worth their weight in gold. And of course, like you were kind of to some degree kind of making it up as it, as it went along. And then suddenly, as you said, the two weeks over there, open everything. Yeah. 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 So how, what way then did the band go after that? Or It went well after that for a while. We were playing gigs. I remember back doing all ages gigs in Krushkin Lawn and hotels in Waterford and just kids going crazy, you know, walls of debt and I saw that actually. We, yeah. you no, know, we were we, we had a great following in that um amongst like the younger generation, which was great. And to this day now, some of my closest friends here in Cork and people I know, like Chris and Alex from Baylor, they were at those gigs when they were kids. No way. You know what I mean? So and you know, it's just mad to look back at all that and how it's all come around. And to end up like living with those people for a while and you're like, how has this, you know, it's funny. So you always look at things, every interaction in life then as it could be bigger. But um, yeah, we did really well. Gigged a lot for a while. We're really passionate about it, really pushing it. Then members just start not pulling their weight. You know, people lose interest. People's priorities change what because was current the, friends. And yeah, uh, I know. Yeah. What was the scene like back then? You said they were, they were, were, were they well attended, the gigs? The gigs were great back then. That was back, it was like... 
2009 yeah between 2006 and 2009 i'd say were like the main gigging years for us so crucial okay. alone was really buzzing then it was yeah that siege was start like we played a couple of yearly sieges as revenant and then as towards Arun. that was still in baker's place so that was building and building um you see, I was missing all that time because I was living in Dublin. Ah, Dublin, so yeah, Dublin wasn't really a place that we, we played much, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's just well, like Dublin is kind of insular that way. It is, yeah, they unfortunately, you know. I think that's changing, but at the time it was very much um, Dublin bands got priority over Engels and they got the gigs as yeah. well, you know. That's only changed in the last few years. No, really exactly, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So kind of from there then, how did you form Zahora or how did that come about? After I thought Rune ended. I was heartbroken because it was supposed to be everything, you know? Okay. And then when it was coming to the end, it was just kind of trying to drag dead weight around, trying to get people interested and trying to replace members. And everything was just changing too much all the time. And it, it just was getting too weak that it just had to be done. So it was, I, I can't remember exactly how it ended. I think it just petered out, you know? Okay. Um, there was no bad blood, so to speak. So I spent a couple of years just getting real fat and real depressed and uh, working in a factory and just... You know, not just, just... Were you writing or anything? Nah, everything. Stopped everything. Okay. Like, you know, um, I was just... Just... Um, lost. Just lost. Yeah, okay. completely lost. And um, I just remember realising that there's just... I just... Music is missing, you know, and I just got the guitar out. Were you I, that kind of guy, actually, that, you know, you said you were lost there, but you're still getting guys coming up to you going, Colin, what are you doing? You know, I loved your stuff. And... Yeah. Or did you just kind of keep away even from those type of people, like socially? Yeah, I did think Clamelder just wasn't really the people to socialise with. Crowbat Chicken were getting big, so I I spent some time guitar taking for them. I went over to Glastonbury with them. Okay. Um. So that was great. I learned a lot actually doing that kind of stuff, which is paying off today. Um. But really, I just started playing guitar again. I can't remember specifically how it happened. I just knew I, I needed to start playing and I got a drum machine on the computer and it became easier to record at home. So I just started writing songs myself. Okay. Um, wrote a few songs, was going to gigs in Clamell and the Piper Inn at the time. Bands would come through town a lot then, you know, because it, yeah. it was kind of a good link between Dublin and Cork. So it, it made sense for bands. Um, so I remember seeing Pancho and Tom, who are the drummer and guitarist of Zora, playing in their band at the time with a couple other guys in Clamell. They're going to kill me now, but I can't think of the name of the band for some reason it'll come back to me all of a sudden yeah. but um i remember seeing them playing and i just remember seeing pancho me and pancho are brothers now you know it's like we we go up to check into hotels when we're playing gigs and people ask us oh you guys are twins we're like yeah yeah we are we just go with it now you know we're just you know peas in a pod um so i remember always having an affinity with him before i knew him he was a bit younger than me and i'd meet him at the glamour god in dublin okay and i'd be like well man you know and at the time i it was older. Now it's all balanced out because as you get into your 20s and 30s, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Yeah, but back when he's 16 or 17 and I'm 20, there's a big difference there, you know. So I'd see them at gigs, uh, him more specifically with a couple of the lads. I used to meet them at the same shop when they were getting munchies after smoking a few joints like I was. Yeah. So, you know, you start yeah. like kind of c- catching the eye and um, then they were at a funeral for one of their friends um, who passed away. And I remember specifically seeing Pancho carrying the coffin. Jesus. And I remember just thinking... I remember just sympathizing with him in that moment and seeing the look in his face and going, he's like me. And I've always been the person that I can get past my own darkness by helping other people. Okay. Um, so I just knew we needed to do something together because it would help me out of my hole and it would help him out of a hole he was potentially about to fall into. He might have a different version of it. That's just how it felt to me yeah. at the time. And um, I'd seen Tom playing and it's so hard to find a drummer anywhere, even in the city. So in a small town to all of a sudden walk into a room and Tom Woodlock, he's even an at animal. that age, just playing drums, I was just like, 
it was like walking in and seeing Gene Hoagland yeah. playing drums. Yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. no matter what happens, these motherfuckers are going to be in a band with me. Like, I just poached them, like, okay. completely, you okay. know? So I remember um, texting Pancho maybe a week after seeing that funeral and um, just having that kind of epiphany that something needed to happen. And I just invited him over to my gaff, came over, had a smoke, sat down. I was like, I'm going to play some tunes I've been writing. See what you think. If you're up for it, maybe you, me, and Tom can have a jam. Played the tunes and we, we talk. And then at the end, it was just, there we are. Zora was there now, you know what I mean? We just, nice. we just knew it was going to be a thing. So um, we but just went for a jam in the same place we're jamming now in Tom's parents' gaff. And um, it was just awkward. But by the end of it, we had Leading the Fools, I think, which is um, a song that's on our first EP, which to this day has a big place in our hearts. And we've done like updated versions of it and all. It kind of never seems to go away. It's just got something in it, you know. But that was it. Yeah, it started from that. But kind of, again, it's a, it's, it's a different form of kind of metal that you're playing. And just in relation to the lads, how hard was it to convince them to kind of, obviously you had, as you said, your, you, the demos done, stuff like that. Like, what did they bring to it? Did it change it a bit? Yeah, I know it was your unique view at the start. Yeah. But like, did it change it? Did it add to it? Or like, how did it kind of form? Because you do have a distinct sound and you've improved it steadily through the years, obviously. Yeah. But I mean, just at the start, like, did you have to figure each other out? Yeah. Because kind of what influences were they bringing into it? I was the same. Yeah, I think at the start, like you said yourself, I had these songs written and um, we just jammed. We've always been a band that just comes to practice with an idea and we just jam it. And then okay. it's always just been an, an unspoken thing. Like it just, when I come with a riff, you've got a pulse of a beat in your head as the way you think it might go. Tom Woodlock will never play that. <laughs> He'll always just surprise you with this thing that you could never have come up with yourself. Just in how the snare lands or something. And for a long time, we were like purposefully trying to overcomplicate things because we were trying to teach ourselves how to be better musicians. And I now I think we've gotten a hold on that. And like where it's okay yeah. to simplify things for this part. But at the time, that's where Zora's sound came from. This like more new, neo, you know, this kind of tread new ground always like for every note, for every beat. Um... So I think at the start, it was a lot of my vision that got that first EP together. Okay. But like really the songs molded into shape by just us jamming together and getting so, used to each other, you know. So that um, that EP then was Feet Nailed to the Ground in 2012. Yeah. And you recorded it in Limerick. Recorded in Limerick with Ben Wonders from okay. Charborn. Recorded it in the church in the middle of the city. He's Not actually sh- done a few albums. I've heard of his name before, yeah. Charborn, yeah. Ben is great, you know. Him and Kieran, um, the both of them are engineers. Um, it's just their life, you know, like okay. the rest of us. They just, they're just great at that, and they're just good people. So, it was a no-brainer. I remember we recorded most of the music there, and then we went to his mum's house and recorded upstairs, very much like this room. And we did guitars, and we were just learning as we went. It was the same. I had the studio experience yeah. from Thoughts of Ruin, and that was a big thing because I knew how things would work. And I recorded the bass, and then we didn't actually have a singer, so we finished all the music. I had the idea that I'd like to be the singer, and I had lyrics written in case we. You know, so when we were just there and we had the time and it was like, well, I have some lyrics written. Will I just go in and try them out? And I remember going in and doing the first song, looking back in the room and everyone gave the thumbs up and we're kind of like, we didn't know you could scream or shout your head off. And neither did I, you know. So that EP, you're hearing me, my first ever vocal performance. Wow. So, so that was it. You so you had no one assigned vocal no. duty. Were you just an instrumental at that stage? And then... Yeah, we just kind of thought maybe we'd get a singer. It was okay. just on, and like you brought it that far and then went, right, Colin. Yeah, literally there and then on cool. the day. Like, we're like, sure, we'll just give it a go. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I always wanted to be a singer. I always felt I could be... A, I was just... 
as an adolescent, I wasn't very um, popular. I was like uh, popular amongst my friends and everything, but I didn't have the confidence to be that alpha that you need to be to yes. be a heavy metal singer. You yeah. need you need to be able to go into that frame of mind, you know. And that was very much a big thing then on that day to be able to just do it off the cuff and. So the next, we, the next, obviously the next gig then you had to go up front then. Yeah. How did that go? We hadn't played a gig yet, you know. We um, yeah. uh, the big thing that really um solidified Zora and the big thing that turned it into a real thing and the big brother that helped us become men was Richie McCormick and he was our bassist. Okay. For most of Zora, you know, um, he was a he was the guy that got me back into music. Actually, what I spoke earlier about being manically depressed and. I remember him, he's always the guy that gets you up out of a dark place, you know, and he knew I was in a dark place and he was a bit older and he was a regular in the Piper, so we'd all see each other and Richie was kind of the mad older lad and he kind of took me under his wing and I remember him bringing me to the siege after I'd been absent for a few years and I were just seeing Five Will Die were still at it and they were friends of mine from gigging back in the day and that ignited it in me then again. Um, so then it just made sense that Richie was going to obviously come in and be the bassist, but he brought so much to it and then he, he was the one that like gave us our bravery to just go and play the gigs and not worry if that song isn't quite there. We'll okay. go and we'll gig it anyway. We'll we'll do it live, you know what I mean? Yeah. And we did. And Richie was a big part of that and he helped us come out of our shell on stage because he's an animal, you know, he'd like be biting the bass and you're just like, Well, fuck it, like, let's go. You know what I mean? It was like um, the Warriors going off to war and he was the guy with the biggest axe at the front, you know. Or was it Hurley? When did Hurley come into it? Ah, yeah, we brought the Hurleys <laughs> to a couple of gigs. I think we might have alienated a few people with that because uh, there, there's a there's a certain point of lunacy that the rest of the world doesn't understand. Yeah, and the Hurleys were the Hurleys is one of them. Yeah, <laughs> but you live and learn. <laughs> yeah. So then that went. Um, so yeah, the following year, then you recorded the album, mm. Almaz. We went down to Kerry, Tyg Healy, I believe, was his name. It was um, a studio in Ardfort, which is, again, down by the water, funnily enough. Um, the trees were, like, growing sideways from the wind type of Brilliant. thing. Brilliant. Um, music. Oh, Inspiration. Class, class. Yeah. We were there for maybe a week drinking Kennedy whiskey. Um, we used to go up and it was, like, maybe, like, a 50-year-old kind of one that was all dolled up working in the off-license. And we used to go in there and have a bit of a chat with her. And the Kennedy whiskey was cheap, but it was really good. <laughs> so we had, we remember we claimed Carrick Tool at the end, you know, hungover. Um, we were a real band of brothers. We still are to this day, you know. Um, but there's a spiritual side of you as well. Yeah, like that, that kind of comes through. That can be a dirty word, spirituality in these in this climate, you know, when everybody's trying to sound cool, but it's there, you know, whatever yeah. your soul is. That's what drives this music, you know. And and um, I mean, kind of from my own perspective as well. Like, a kind of if you go to somewhere and it's, Curry definitely has it. That if you're kind of in, we'll say, a lake or woods down there, there's yeah. just, just a, di a different kind of feeling that takes over. And, and uh, I'd imagine recording that album down there, as you say, by a lake with wind swept trees and stuff. Yeah, it's just. Must have just brought you on. I remember specifically sitting with Richie when um, Pancho was tracking his guitars. And between the house and the, stu the studio was an old butter factory turned into a studio, you know, so it's okay. a big, huge live room, really class studio. So between there and the main house was. Almost like a sunroom, you know, an all-glass conservatory type deal. And we'd sit in there. That was like the common room between both places. You could see in the door of the studio and then you had the house there. But remember me and Richie sitting there and it was so windy. We were watching the crows just fly up into the wind and just let themselves go and be blown back by it. And things like that, you know, you're just looking at these crows having the crack with the wind. Yeah. And you're a couple of monkeys drinking whiskey, having the crack by vibrating strings through mad electronical machines. You're like... 
you know, it doesn't get much better at that stage. It doesn't get fucking much better as a group of 20-something-year-olds, you know what I mean? That's that's their experiences that some people never have, no matter what the medium is. So, um, yeah, Almaz, funnily enough, is a Richie. Richie came up with the name. It's somehow Russian or some part of the world like that. I don't know where he came, some Wikipedia some night, but it means rough diamond. Okay. And that's certainly what we were. Yes. So it suited the music and, and the lyrics are were all kind of written by me at the time and I was going through my whole rebirth as becoming like a better version of myself and you can talk about that as being spiritual, whatever it may be. Mm. So it was we were all rough diamonds and we were all trying to polish it together, you know, and what about kind of did the lads come forward then with kind of vocal duties at that stage? Yeah. Actually kind of settled into a kind of Yeah, we settled into a better groove and everybody was finding their place and you know at the time, I was still felt like I was the leader. You know what I mean? Without sounding contrived, no, no. like you know that I still was kind of trying to make. I was I was the one firing the arrow, you know, and seeing where it would go. But Tom is like a big part of things now, and he always knew he would be, you know. And he found his feet, and he's a very intelligent guy when it comes to music. Like he he understands it in a different way than me and Pancho. You know, we're okay. we're the feeling, and he's the the maths of it you know what i mean if that makes sense so um he's the academic side of things so that was starting to come true and him and pancho started doing back and vocals i think pancho always did back and vocals and tom a little on the first ep but tom was doing more and he was adding a lot of percussion to things and the arrangements of different parts you know were maybe solely him like the whole intro to it was all tom and everybody was starting to get a little bit more confident you know but that kind of, did you, that kind of took a bit of pressure off you then as well did it yeah or sometimes i'll admit it was it's hard like or when, is it when hard you to feel like yeah sometimes it's hard to let go because you feel like i've been doing it right all along you fear that if you're not the one in control it's la 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 yeah. you know control is a, a bastard like it's you, you need to be able to control something in order to make it work but if you grip something too tight it slips through your fingers well i'm a machine head yeah <laughs> exactly you know um whereas now it's one as bad as that you know yeah we always wanted to be we always had an unspoken rule that we were a democracy um you need it you need it uh, you know especially for this music it, it's it's very much about no bullshit so if you want to have bullshit within the band that's writing songs about being no bullshit that is bullshit you know mm, yeah. so um everybody was starting to get their confidence more and find their voice a little more it was really the album after that then when everyone started experimenting and i consciously kind of stepped back a little bit from trying to always like, I'm going to put vocals here or, or yeah. just leave Pancho doing the thing and, mm. you know, just let everybody like kind of do their thing and then, you know, we'd all come together when we needed to. So promotion wise, touring wise of that album, do you want to just kind of talk the through Almaz it? album, yeah. Almaz, yeah. Yeah, How we just gigged. Go? They were like some of the most um, frequent times. Did you get times. Um, good sports? Yeah, we, it's hard to think, you know, specifically times and who we supported back then. I know we play with the ocean um, we play with Dictated, a band from the Netherlands, signed to Metal Blade. They came over to the tour, made good friends with them. They were sound people. Did you, know, you did you get to the UK at that stage? No, Can we got to Scotland. We okay. went to Scotland down um, for a few gigs. Um, made some good friends, and then we were invited back a year later to play to headline a festival in Aberdeen, which was really cool. That was our first like being asked to go headline something, even that outside of our country. It was like, yes, there you go. Yeah. All right, you know, those things really... Confirms you're conf- moving in the right direction. A hundred percent, you know, yeah. and um, it was a great gig. Uh, um, we met some great people in Aberdeen, actually. To this day, I'd call them friends. So, um, yeah, we, we really, like, made some ground there. Um, and then, yeah, outside of that, we ha- we didn't... We played in Germany as well, actually. We went over, played a couple of gigs there. Funny story, Richie was driving from Clamel to Care one day and he saw two hitchhikers, um, two girls. So he's like, I'll pick up the two girls, you know, and in they got... Yeah. 
and they all started chatting about music. Turns out one of the girls is in a metal band in Germany. So Richie could talk his way into the White House if he wanted, like. So he talked our way into a tour, into her, or he talked her into organizing a tour for us, pretty much. Um, so her and her boyfriend drove us around and their band played with us. And we just ran, went around a couple of mad places in Germany, like up in the hills and the vineyards. And What was the reaction? The reaction, people didn't know what the fuck to yeah. make of it. Because <laughs> in Germany, like... Did you bring in Harleys? No, not that time. <laughs> <laughs> On the continent, you know... Obviously, there's a lot of great bands, don't get me wrong, but I think, and even in England, you see it, there's so many people that it's all these small scenes that aren't necessarily connected. Yes. So you've got all, in Ireland, it's like a proven ground. So the bands are fucking great because they're pushing each other. There's like this good, healthy band envy in Ireland that mm. everyone's trying to be better. You know what I mean? To impress each other. I think Irish people as creative people are some of the best and most talented, naturally talented yeah. in the world. Whereas... In England and on the continent, the bands that we play with were just, they were just, you know, generic. Mm. You know, without being completely insulting, it was just more generic. There was not necessarily any originality. They were just trying to sound like Heaven Shall Burn because they were the popular band in all the festivals. But a really, like, watered-down version of it, you know? So, yeah, there's not any bands that really stood out as being, you know great bands but Probably we were so different that we alienated the crowd as well you know? yeah i can imagine yeah. i can imagine so but was it true i'd say you sounding so different is that how you landed whacking i mean uh, you, you had to go through a competition as well though did you hear we came pancho kind of phrase one day a couple of years ago when things were kicking off he just said from here on in we're just not going to give anyone a choice you know even if they don't like the music if they're at our gig they by the end of it just by the sheer passion that's like oozing from the stage it's a it, you just can't deny that whether you're into it or not like in terms of the, the the music yeah so i think that's what got us so many places like when we played those that gig they got us to whack and i remember that night just staring at everybody while i was playing just being like there's no way <laughs> this isn't ours you know it yeah. was was this D- dublin yeah yeah it was dublin i remember in on the rocks um was who was in that? Were you up against two or three bands? Can you remember? There was a couple of bands. I think maybe were Genova there ourselves. I remember there was some band that like were wearing black shirts with red ties that were. It was like Howard. What are they doing here? Like yeah. nobody knew yeah, they yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. But I think it was just kind of a thing. Yeah, it was a last minute thing that it was actually going to happen that year. Okay. So it was like a few emails got in in time, and I think um it was just kind of a fair like broad scope of different types of bands. Yeah. Maybe two tales of woe might have been there as well. Okay. Um. But on the night, we just we, we were just on fire. We just... You owned it. Yeah, we just owned it on the night. Some Sometimes you have the worst gig of your life. Other nights, it's just nobody can can, can touch you, you know? Yeah. Um, in relation to that, have you been to... Wack- I mean, like, Wacken is that festival that, as a fan, you can never get because it's always sold out. Yeah. H- had you, any of you been there before that? Yeah, I'd been there back in Revenant days. Me, oh, and, me okay. and Dave used to go to Hellfest, Wacken, download... We'd go to festivals every year because we were working good jobs at the time, like yeah. I said earlier. It was a, it was easy, you know. It was just easy mm. to afford these things. And at the time, it wasn't sold out straight away. It was okay, you know. It was that was ten years ago or so. Mm. So I remember going there, and then ten years later, I remember walking out to the stage at Wacken and going, "What the fuck is happening yeah. here?" Like, you know, it was just mad. Complete circle. Yeah, man, it's dream. Me and Richie very much visualized that happening for years previous. We used to always say to each other, "I just see us playing on a big stage." Our music does better on, bi- on big stages, I think, it than does, it does yeah. on smaller stages, you know. That's how I actually came across you. Because I, I remember just the, the big buzz about Zohora playing Wacken. I was going, fucking hell, an Irish band getting the main stage and Wacken. I still don't know 
how I came across the news, but it was obviously on social media, something. Yeah. Or then I started following you. Then I was just going, Jesus. So when the footage came up, I was just going, this is savage. Yeah, it was great. You know? and, and like you did stare down the crowd. You were not intimidated. Maybe you were inside. The hearts were probably going like crazy, but it doesn't come across in your performance at all. Yeah. I mean, the failings of that performance are a little bit of that in the heart. You know what I mean? Um, obviously, biggest gig of everyone's lives. Um, there was other stuff going on there health wise that um really came to a head then and it was the it was the best and worst time of our lives that, that trip to Germany it really was, you know. Um so it was um it was just it was just like that again. It was like we're fucking here now and I remember thinking in my mind, I was like, No matter what happens, I'm gonna play the best gig of my life. But you know, you're playing gigs like this and you, and you, you just get on the stage and you've got to play in 20 minutes and there's an amp somewhere that you're supposed to be using and your lead isn't long enough and okay. your pedals, when you get on the stage, you realise, shit, I should have got better pedals for the gig, you yeah. know? You know, it's you're too late at that stage. It's yeah. too late, so you just go with it. So I hear it now and I'm like, oh, fuck, like, I hear all the, that's the, the crux of being a musician is you never get to enjoy your own music, your own performances looking okay. back because you hear the failings in them. Okay. Um, What was your kind of build up towards the gig? Like, you know, did you like have a smoke or did you have a beer or did you just kind of go right on the day like on the day just get out there be sober or we, what, we, what, we, what we way did you approach it like we we got in the van and we we got the ferry to france and we drove from france and we drove up through belgium and we played a few gigs there <laughs> mad mad great experience and then we got up to whack and so we're on the road for like a week okay. in a van together so like you know we were as bonded as brothers could be yeah um a bit tired for some of us you know um obviously you're gonna have a few drinks as you go but on the day we were there, we were ready to go, you know what I mean? Before the gig, I remember everyone backstage knew who we were because we were fucking, like, on fire, you know, with the Irish flag, and everyone was like, these are the Irish lads, you know? So, um, you know, I wish our, our, not that our songs weren't good, it's just we're better at writing songs now, so you're yeah. always like, God, if we could play our songs yeah. now there, you know? Yeah. Um, but outside of that, everything was as good as it could have been, you know? It's, we, we really, we did the best with what we had at the time based on our experience, based on the equipment we had. Um, the afterglow must have been something special like. yeah when we came down when we came off the stage it was just uh, amazing buzz you know it was yeah I remember sitting on a hill in Germany that night with Pancho um, after a couple of drinks and all getting split up and finding each other again and I remember sitting there and just realising that this is what we're going to do with the rest of our lives and it was very you know those special moments you have with someone when you just you just know you're like it's it's going to be a hard road but um, we're here now you know yeah. we've we've achieved more than most bands ever would We've, I've, I've already achieved all my dreams that I set out for myself and I'm not even 30. Yeah, you know, well, as I said, you went full circle, like from a fan going to whack into playing it. I mean, that's, later, that's, yeah. that's, 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 a lot of people don't even get to enjoy that feeling, yeah, you know? A lot of people don't even get to go to Wacken yeah. as a punter, you <laughs> know what I mean? So it's mad, but the, the, the killing thing of it is like, um, there's a good Baroness lyric that came out on the last album. Um, oh, I can't remember precisely now, but um, the worst day of your life is the day your dreams come true, something like that. And it's very true because you play whacking and then you're like, right, well, I need to get back there. Like, I need to play yeah. every big stage in the world. It's like, not, you know, obviously I'll play anywhere. I'll play in the corner of this room and yeah. I love it and, I, and yeah. it'll be the same for as any other gig. But as soon as you get to that level of it, you just want to get back there. So that really gives you a fire as well, yeah. you know. But um, it's hard at the time because you're like, shit, they've got to make a bigger fucking dream, you know. So kind of going from there then... Um, did you lose Richie then in the following few months? Or yeah, that was Richie's last gig, you know. Oh, um, right, okay. Yeah, Richie had a brain tumour and he'd been dealing with it for a while. When we came back from Scotland, it was kind of um, on the way back from Scotland was the first time we found out about it, you know. Um, 
because it was, it was epileptic, you know, were, were the symptoms of it. So um, he'd have seizures and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, we knew leading up to Wacken, he shouldn't have been really playing gigs, you know, but Richie is the ultimate warrior, go out on the shield, that kind of a man, you know. Yeah. And um, that was his biggest dream was to play a gig like that. And he's in the scene like Chloricon. He's in the scene longer than any of us, you know what I mean? And he's been playing the bands for years and years. So it was a it was tough for us to swallow and it really it really fucked us up as individuals and as a group of people. Um that, you know, it was just hard to see that happen to your brother. Of course. And yeah. for him reluctantly having to have to leave the band. Uh, it was just tough, tough, tough. We finished the album together and then that was we're still obviously best friends. Um we're still brothers till the end, you know, but um he just can't be involved in that side of life because it just, you know, he's just got to deal with yeah. what, what he's got to issues, deal with, you yeah. know. And, um, yeah, so that was the last gig with Richie. And um, how did you find Alan? We knew, I remember the, I remember the very, very, very moment I ever saw um, Alan, more affectionately known as Batman. Um, I walked into Fibbers one night, we were playing a gig, and Nautilus were playing on stage, and that's his, uh, his main man. Um, I walked in and I saw him playing, there was this big, huge guy his back turned playing guitar and he had a big huge weed leaf tattooed in his back and he was wearing a pair of dungarees and he had a long ponytail and then i saw batman there and i was just like whoever these fuckers are <laughs> we need like they're going to be friends definitely yeah. you know yeah. so uh we talked to him afterwards and then we played a good, a good few gigs together and all that but did he know at the time i, I presume he did that yeah, Richie we weren't was that gone. close you know we were close yeah. enough as you would be um you know just kind of going to gigs together gigs yeah, yeah, yeah. Siege yeah and all that and, okay. you, and you knew you were kindred spirits because there was a wildness in us all that you could relate to okay um, and obviously we had the conversation and I had a couple of ideas of basis, basis and um, I think we approached one or two people just to kind of get the ball rolling. You know, we're very much, don't just sit down and just wallow on a problem. Mm. Come up with a solution. It might not yeah. be the ultimate solution, but come up with it something like, you know what I mean? To lead you to the next thing. Yeah. Don't just fall apart. So we did. And then I think he was just one of the people we eventually contacted. There wasn't many, maybe two or three. Um, and then when we contacted, I think just it, it became a revelation to us. We were like, what about Batman? He's perfect, you know? Obviously, the, the distance was maybe an issue in our minds at the time, but now we're all traveling from all over the country. You just, True, you yeah. just make it work when you have to. So um, we approached him, and I think he was just delighted that we asked him. And he came for a jam. He just knew all the songs. And like, the battle. Batman's just solid. There's just no worry with Batman. He just, you know, he's just incredibly reliable. He adds a lot more musically than in the band to the band. And I think he would even know or admit, you know. Okay. He 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 makes little suggestions here and there, and there's there's suggestions that will just make a song, and he's so understated in his approach. It's wonderful, you know. Yeah. It really is, and as a person, he's just the best type of person, you know. He's like I said, he, he's a, he's reliable, yeah. Um, consistent, and um, a good bass player. Yeah, a good bass player, and he's a gentleman, you know. Yeah. What more can you ask for, really? Exactly. So, did he record then? Um, the is it? Yeah, when that was 2017, then he recorded Ethos, Patos, and Lo is it Logos? Yeah, we, we recorded that over the span of about three years. That was all the, the stuff that happened with Richie and, you know, your own personal lives. We were all kind of coming into our mid-20s and late-20s, and there's a lot of, like, recreational drug use that was maybe going a bit too far at times, and, you know, that was creating just some psychosis in people's minds, and we're all going through weird places, and... We wanted to write the next crack this guy and we had yeah. big ideas and you know our ideas about ourselves are a bit bloated i think um and now we've come back down to earth but i think it's good as a creative person to push the limits even if um you know they might be a little bit counterproductive at times if you can survive it there's yeah. a lot of lessons to learn there 
So um, Richie recorded everything on that. Okay. That's his last kind of recorded okay. performance. Well, he has a lot of vocals on that as well, which are almost Alison Chainsy, which was the direction we were kind of going with things. And obviously that changed since then. Right. But um, he's got a song on it, Earthed, which was a song that he wrote years ago. And then we took it and turned it into this ballad almost, you know. Yeah. So um, it's bittersweet, that album. It really is, you know. We really pushed the limits. We really all learned how to have our voice musically and vocally. Um, it all bound us together and tore us apart. You know yeah, what I mean? It's yeah. one of those albums. Yeah. You know, so... Um, I mean, the, even the packaging of it looked beautiful. Yeah, we put know? a lot of work into things, yeah. you know. It's, it's, a, it's an incredibly vast concept album and it, it's a great concept album because we understand it. Yes. The hardest part about that like we released an animated music video and another music video mm. and if you look at them you'll see that there's commonality and there's an actual story going between them and it's the same character and we always thought should we release like a 20 minute video of us explaining the concept because Mastodon are obviously a, we're big fans you know and we love Crack the Sky and yeah. that turned us all into better musicians and music listeners because it's such a vast um, album so uh, to this day we're like God if we could just explain that album to people they'd get it more and it would make the, the, the madness of it would make sense because it's about this torment of this character and then eventually leading to, you know, some kind of resolve. Um, and you can hear that in, in the structure of the album, but it's a long album. There's a lot to digest. So it's very hard for people to wrap their brains around, I think. It's, yeah, it's an album I found myself that it was one that I could relate to on a, on a, lo a long car journey, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's because, oh, you're in it, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, like, going, f like, if you're listening to it, personally maybe 20 minutes and you get interrupted you get, you know you're kind of going oh i have to do this i have to do that but if you're on a long car journey that album from start to finish yeah 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 it's, it's, it's got peaks and valleys yeah 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 it does yeah so did you you got bloodstock then in 2017 yeah that was after the metal to the masses competition which is obviously massively successful run by the guys in overdrive um we've done that a couple of years it is the best and worst thing a band can do in my opinion um, it's it, funny now you said that someone else yeah, said that it pits as well. you against people you know what I mean yeah. it pits you against your friends yeah because you all want to play Bloodstock yeah and you'll walk over each other to get there you know because you're passionate about what you're doing above all else so that's terrible like when you're confronted with feeling like that when you're in this thing where it's all about brotherhood and then all of a sudden it's tainted with that but that's just a harsh reality of that you know yeah it's a, it's the battle of the bands it's the battle of the bands know? but it makes you better as a band then as well you know yeah. because you're you're trying to win above other bands so you've got to be the best band yeah so the way to be the best band is to become a better band <laughs> yeah. you know so it pushes because we failed twice and then that was the last year we were like we're fucking doing it and everything had happened with richie so then batman was in the band for the run that eventually got us there and i think like you know the people and the judges and that they could they knew about all that. We were open about that when Richie left and we, we put up a post and we wanted to let people know what had happened. And, uh, you know, I think they knew that. And I think I think having that in that context in people's minds when we were playing and they saw the visceral, just, you know, fire, like, brewing inside us and fucking exploding every every gig we played in the run-up to it, it was undeniable. And I remember the final, it was just, it was like the whacking one. It was just... There's no, we're not leaving a doubt in anyone's mind, you know what yeah. I mean? This is it. We're, yeah. You know, self-belief, there's a lot, lot to be said for self-belief. But when you can get four people to have that level of self-belief at the same time on a stage, that's the magic of it. That's why we're all sitting here talking about music, because that's yeah. the magic of it, you know? I found um, what I loved about GM Bloodstock, and of course, you would have been 
probably competing against some of those bands that didn't make it. But the lads that went over, um, all my friends, the whole lot, Zahora, uh, Bloods, what is it, what is it, the New Blood stage, yeah. yeah. The support you had yeah, was, was great. fantastic. Yeah. I mean, like, we were all down the front. This is the Irish lads, ah. you know, and it was just like, come on, lads, just fucking knock them dead, you know? It's a mad thing, isn't it? I mean, yeah. to, to be on a stage in England, you know, after, you don't have to get too Republican about it, but, yeah, no. you know, the yeah, history yeah. that we've had, you know, yeah. it's, it's it's a great thing to be able to go over there all these years later after terrible things that have happened between two nations that are right beside each other and to stand on that stage and realise, you know, these are Celtic people yes. like me, you know what I mean? And here we are now and it's, mm. All that bullshit is behind us, hopefully, and it was a it's a very amazing thing, and it has been for all the bands that have done it, you know. Um have my regrets about that gig, like we all do in the band, you know, technical difficulties and different things that um you know, I, in my mind it's not one of our best gigs, Bloodstock, and it was one of our biggest gigs to get. You know, but we kinda tripped over a hurdle here or there and you know, to some days just it just, the gig just isn't what you want it to be because it's just so alien to you, you know? Yeah. Um, But, you know, it's it's an amazing experience, you know, that's that's galvanized so I mean, much more were, for us again. I mean, look, you were cheered off the stage. I mean, everybody yeah. afterwards were just going, wow. You know, I know you'd be your, probably your own harshest yeah, critic, critic yeah, you know? Yeah, and, and I think he did the interview afterwards as well. Yeah. With, um, I don't know who it was. Total Rock it? and yeah. Sure, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like... It's up to you then to sell the whole process that bit further then. Yeah. And, and was there any kind of feedback from any of those? Well, everything afterwards? that's happening now with Zora, like we've got a lot happening at the moment. And a large portion of that has to do with the contacts we made from Bloodstock. Okay. The people that we impressed on the way to Bloodstock. And then the people that we've met at Bloodstock, meeting them again afterwards, where we did our own tours of the Yes, UK. you followed it up afterwards. Yeah. We followed up afterwards, yeah. and what we've, it, like a lot of times, and a lot of band members would tell you this, that, that, that do that thing and travel and play gigs, it's, you can have a bad gig, but you can meet two people at that bad gig, and those two people can lead on to 10 brilliant gigs. You okay. know what I mean? So there's no such thing as a bad gig, or there's no such thing as, oh, we're going to play this gig in such a place, oh, there was no one there, this and that, but we impressed the sound man, who knows that promoter in that city okay and then that gig is amazing you know what i mean so yeah. th there's no such thing as a bad gig really you know it, it, it always leads to something what are the crowds like in the uk in relation to ireland um i just think ireland is the best i just really do especially now i mean what's happening in cork alone it's just that's just the siege look at the siege in limerick i mean yes. bring any metal fan in the world to and bring them to the siege for a day and they'll go away telling you that Ireland is one of the best scenes in the country, you know. Um, I think just people here, you know, for all our begrudging and all our failings culturally, I think we just have such a clarity when it comes to art. And, you know, that spirit that's in people and how people get it out and how genuine and authentic it is. Um, and how it's always a new take. Like, even go back to Tin Lizzy, Rory Gallagher, you know, Sinead O'Connor, these people changed the world with their music and they were doing like a new version of something or they were fusing things together and you know just playing it with such passion that it was undeniable and i think we have that here and i think a lot of bands in england and places like that they don't necessarily have that obviously there are bands that do you know and there are bands yeah. that change the world as well i yeah. mean don't get me wrong but you know for the most part the scene is just kind of a little bit pedestrian compared to here in, the, in the uk more yeah. so yeah but there's a lot more what support about scotland for example 
Scotland is a different animal then. Yeah, Scotland is a lot closer to us, you know, yeah. and, and the bands are, are a little different like that. I think when you go further south and you get closer to massive places like London, um, Manchester, they, Liverpool. They such choice. They have such choice that, you know, you, you play a gig in a city and you get half the people and then you play somewhere in the middle of England that's more like Clomel and Tipperary and everybody buys a t-shirt and a hoodie and you sell out all your merch and then the guy, the promoter likes you so much that he pays you an extra £100 that you has know, happened, like, yeah. Cool. That happen, yeah, that happens more in those places than it does in the city, mm. which is funny, you know. So yeah. it, it's to do with people and, you know, you're a product of your environment. So people that live more rurally or with less, um, you know, places to go see a gig on a Tuesday night or whatever, they appreciate things more. Yeah. And the bands appreciate how much harder it is for them to have a scene so they'll put more effort into it. Whereas in your city, you just become more pedestrian to it and it, you become uh, complacent. Yeah, well, people could miss it too, as I said, like kind of, you know, um, Dublin, not so much. I would I'd imagine with London alone, just this sheer scale of gigs that are on there. Yeah. I, and I just wonder about like a band like Zahora or Ten Ton Slug when they hit London, you know, do they have to kind of go out of their way to promote it socially? I think that's probably the best way to kind of go about it. Yeah, it? it's hard then you're dealing with like... Because like, you, you know, if you kind of leave it up to the, we'll say a promoter in London, will he... Go the extra step for you. No. Yeah. This is <laughs> Long what I'm trying story to, short. Like yeah. some promoters, they're doing it because they love to do it. Like you're doing this now because you love to do it and you have the capacity to do it and help. Promoters are a weird one. You have the promoters that do it because they love it and they understand how hard it is for bands and they understand that they can help be a facilitator to the whole scene. Then you've got promoters that were too lazy to pick up a guitar and they want to be a fucking rock star. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And all they care about is being seen to be putting on gigs bullshit yeah and there's a lot of them you know okay <sighs> and there's them in england as well so then it's one thing you know if you're able to like talk to the guy face to face here in ireland and like figure out which one of them he is and then like you know use your better judgment and okay. who, who you work with in england it's an email and emails can be very deceiving and then you get there and you realize this dickhead doesn't yeah. know what he's doing and he doesn't care and um you know it's a long he, way to go not, for that. Yeah, he's not giving us what he promised and he's not he didn't pull his weight and you get to a place and there's no poster and you ask the locals and they're like, We didn't even know this gig was happening. And yeah. you're like, Fuck you. It's a common like, tale. Yeah, it's just the reality of it. Um so you get better at finding the good contacts and then you get better at forming relationships with them. And then you help them out and they help you out and then you build a real working relationship. And if you do that enough times, you weed out the people. You yeah. know, it's just I think it's that's happening. I think that's happening in Ireland, really, isn't it? Oh, Ireland is great. Yeah. It's great because everyone knows each yeah. other. You know what I mean? And what I said about promoters is like, there's that's really not much of a thing here. Like yeah. maybe more so in England, but here, it's a it's just a passionate thing. I think Ireland always feels like, so we have nothing fucking else to do now. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we'll do this. You know, we always. I think it's the timing as well. Yeah. You know, I think kind of it's a good it's it's a good wave to be on at the moment. Yeah. You know, whereas before there's there's been gaps of years where there's nothing. just nothing. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like a stagnant pool. So I think the more people realize what we have now at the moment, it's for the better of everybody. Everybody will benefit, you know. Just look at Metal to the Masses this year. I think me and Tom were looking at it yesterday. Um, We were at practice and we were trying to figure out who won the heat on Saturday night. And um, we just looked at the overall poster of all the bands. And from when we were playing it three, four years ago, we knew every band on every you know, heat. And now it's hard to pick out a band. You know, that's, yeah. what, that's 30 bands that I don't yeah. know that are now active in Ireland. And then you've got Tombs, Grey Stag, God Alone, Carosa. You know, there's this whole new wave of bands that 
just start a gigging and they're gigging like bands that have been playing for five years. Yes. You know, and I think people being able to record at home now much easier. People being able to go onto YouTube and check out bands all over the world and learn from all these bands all over the world. You know, as a musician, you study all of that as well, I believe. Yeah. Um, but as a musician as well, Colin, with your experience, I mean, Jesus, you're at it now for... Since 15 years, 15 years. Yeah, so, yeah. so like you will be able to approach these younger bands oh and I am and as you, can, you can, can see yeah, it you yeah. can see it with people talking to you you can see it with um, Sean or the 10 ton slug as well yeah, you yeah. know just, I can name a few that really want to help others you yeah, know man, come with us and come with us on this journey and we'll help you and we'll get you to the next stage you know yeah and here's the mistakes that we made yeah and here's the mistakes that you need to make but here's the ones that you can avoid okay you know what I mean and then if you want to get this done and there's there's a way you can budget it that you don't have to sacrifice the quality of things. Yeah, it's just a matter of forming the right relationship and being pragmatic in your approach mm. to things. You know, um, yeah. So, so that's that's a big focus, helping helping everybody, helping each other. So in 2018, then you did uh, "Rootless Bastards" a single. Is that um, uh, lead up to an uh, an EP or an album, or oh, can yeah, you say? Yeah, yeah. That okay. was like um, "Rootless it's a great Bastards." Great song. Yeah, man. Great we, video as well. We're so happy with all of that. It um. It started as a joke. We, after we was part of Logos, we wanted to start writing again and we thought, all right, we need a palate cleanser. We need something that's fun because Edo's Paris Logos was so heavy and like, even though the lyrical content is esoteric, it's all very much close to home for your own mental torment and dark periods that we all went through collectively and individually. So we were like, we need to just write a fun song. So we thought, we'll take our favorite genres, trash metal, death metal, black metal, um, sludge metal, doom metal, and we'll just make a song that has the best parts of all of those genres. So it started as a joke, and then as we started writing, we were like, oh, we're actually getting better at writing songs, so like it doesn't sound like a joke, you know? So then, all right, let's write some lyrics just about the bastards, you know? You know those bastards, like, <laughs> you know, the government and the this and the that, the, the, the demons in the head. Yeah. It's all about that, you know? And just about a, a middle finger up, you know? It's like, tongue in cheek um you know just it's a positive anthem really is what it is yeah you know so um and the video was excellent as well yeah we just said look let's put some money into it um let's release a video we got doc um who's a great videographer i saw he did the video for tuesday blues for baylor it was a savage video savage song as well um baylor lazar class but um saw that and thought right whoever this guy is he knows He's obviously a musician. And then I was like, oh, it's your man Doc from Red Enemy. And ah, of course, yeah. So I had some good chats with him on the phone. Got together in a basement in Dublin. Spent a whole day playing the song about 500 times. So we know that song is in yes. us now, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we had the best laugh. And um, it was kind of launching a bit of a new aesthetic for us. We decided, you know, just to switch things up and get a bit more professional, a, bit, a better approach to it. And, um, you know, galvanize the whole overall image of the band and try and you know, cement who we are and not just be kind of this, ah, sure, it's this and it's that. This is what it is, you know what I mean? This is what Zora is. So the new music that's coming out, we actually, um, we signed a deal lately to, on a, um, with a label for a new release, which Ooh. has been recorded for a while, but we've been sitting on it. Okay. Together with Aidan Cunningham. Sonically, musically, it's just head and shoulders above everything else Zora's ever done. Brilliant news. Even Rootless Bastards, head and shoulders above Is that, that going to be on that album? No. Okay. We, we were, there was talks single. of re-recording it, but um, we recorded that with Mick Richards at Track Mix, and we love what we did with him. Like we went okay. up for two days. He invited us up to record for free. Actually, he just wanted to work with us. And then things went so well on the first day that we went back for a paid day and finished it up and really put the work into it. So um, yeah, we went to Aiden, and we always wanted to work with him. And he's just 
if there's a band listening to this that's worth thinking about a producer Aidan Cunningham is the guy to go to if you have the money for it because he's worth every penny and he's just um an absolute gentleman to work with you know so yeah new um I don't know if I can call it an album or an EP I don't know what the technicality okay. is but it feels like an album to me but technically it's not as long as an album should be so I don't you know it's just a name really um so it's coming yeah it's coming it's all artwork is all done um the contract is signed brilliant which is we just did it literally last week you know together we were like wow like, i can see the yeah. i can see the excitement on your face yeah it's cool you know like for what it's worth i mean if we work harder now it really feels like we can make it if you know what that means you know what making it is is different to everybody but to me and to the lads it's just getting to play our music to more people to bigger crowds playing festival circuits you know yeah. flying in and doing good gigs and um you know, we have the music for it now. I think we're really writing the best music. We've written the best music we've ever written. And the songs, we, we're all just getting better as musicians. We're all not just waiting until we get the practice to practice. We're all putting in the work at home. We're yeah. all, we went through some time when everything happened with Judas Panasogos and we went through a dark period after whacking and stuff like that. And it kind of frayed the relationships of us in the band and we were all developing. And now we've all found amazing women in our lives. And I think we're men now, whereas we were kind of, we were in the transition between being kids and being men, and I think now we're men, and it's it's in the music and the lyrics and um, the whole concept. It's not necessarily a concept, but it's about Ireland. Like there's songs okay. there that are about the absolute atrocities that um, the Catholic Church and religious institutions have caused in this country. Like you know, literally burying fucking babies in the ground. Yeah. There's music about that. There's music about complete mental torment and complete nasty self-delusion which we can all be guilty of you know it's more real it's like the yeah. lyrics are very on the nose where okay. the last one was about a druid in, a, in the sky yeah. eating clouds or see, whatever see yeah concert albums can follow you through a path and yeah. can lead the like again it just needs a dedication to listen to it um, yeah. so this, that's interesting that you're kind of going this other way oh no it's, 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 it's kind of more social commentary it's more of a social commentary without us thinking that we're the next Rage Against the Machine yes, or okay. anything like okay. it's just Social commentary on what it's like to be a man in Ireland with seemingly no real um, future. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, so when it comes to financial security or you know mental security, it just seems now there's you know it's easy to fall yeah, through the our parents like didn't have the internet and it was like you, this is what you do and if you do this everything mm. works out like this and then you have your pension and then you know that's what that is and now. Everybody wants to be a rock star. Everybody wants to be the king of the world because everybody can see the world through the lens of a screen now. Yeah, and without doing without doing the hard slog to yeah, get there. Yeah, you can just fake it there yeah. now. Like whereas, yeah, so everything's gotten back more to being more socially fueled in terms of the lyrics. Um, it's more you can listen to it, and if if you're someone dealing with mental angst, or if you're someone that's just pissed off about atrocities that have been caused by vultures and swine mm. in this country, um. You listen to it and it'll resonate with you a lot, uh, a lot faster than maybe okay. Eros Panos logos would have. For um, your own design, then uh, the Bulga design. The Bulga design, yeah. That's Where are you going with that? Um, funnily, uh, just talking to Erica um, about that even today, and I'm thinking about relaunching it all. It's gotten to the stage now where I've been very successful with it. You know, um, I've. I started drawing again. It's something I always did when I was young, and it's another thing like music. I gave up for a certain amount of years. There was something missing inside me, and then one night I started doodling, and then Zora became the thing that I drew, did art for, and that led me on to meeting bands that wanted art by me, and I formed many great relationships by doing that. Um, I have a very big calling in me now to 
to keep our Celtic heritage alive. Um, Jim Fitzpatrick is my, yeah. my my master. You know, as far as I'm concerned with my art, I have one of his books at home, and it's it's tattered and it's my Bible. And me and Erica, who's sitting here beside me now, my the love of my life, we sit down and we we open it up and we go through the pages and the stories and we find our future children's names. And yeah. I I realize that he's going to die soon, and someone has to keep all this stuff alive because they're mythological stories. But they're stories about humans, you know, about we can all be the Ku Cullen who can kill the hound, you know. We can all be Balor who can destroy, you know. We can all be Morrigan who's dark, you know. Mm. Or we can be a ma- an amalgamation of all of them. So they're stories to help guide the way and go, look, this is these are human characteristics and they're beautiful stories. So that's a big thing for me. I'm thinking of relaunching the art with a new name, everything okay. like that. So it's in progress at the moment. I'm still doing commission work. Um, I'm always doing that, always working with different bands, always trying to meet the deadline and never quite doing it. Yeah. Um, because it's just hard to juggle all this stuff of and course, then yeah. moving to a different city and everything. It's just, and as you're getting older, you're becoming more of an adult and there's, um, you, I'm happy about that now, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm starting to but get, to get the But to get the time to do the designs though, how are you finding? I try not to work, like everybody's got to work to pay the bills, so I try to split half my week with working and half my week with working on art. And then the money I make from commissions for that, okay, um, you know, is a good subsidy for money I'm not making by working Monday and Tuesday, or whatever right. it may be. Um, it's a constant struggle trying to find the room. I'd for imagine it so, yeah, constantly. the balance. So, um, that's kind of that wears on you after a while. When every time you get to draw, you're drawing for somebody, and it's a, for money. So, yeah, you don't have the freedom to creatively go your own way, yeah. is it? Yeah. And okay. there's this. I really want to go that way. I really want to start doing graphic novels to do with Celtic history, um, but updated. So. You can do a story about Ku Cullen, but it's Ku Cullen living today. Yeah. And he goes from the city and he gets to the countryside and he realizes there's secrets in the land and he can apply that to everyday life. So, you know, it's like a self-portrait almost. Yeah. Um, I so mean, yeah. like one that comes to mind, um, Song of the Sea. Song of the Sea. Amazing. Yeah, um, and there's the Selkies, yeah. There's something there, like, I mean... That's exactly what I mean. Like, what th- what that does for the Celtic heritage and for our culture... beautiful. Beautiful. I mean, absolutely amazing, you know. Um, so I want to be a part of that, you know. Yeah. Um, Sean Fitzgerald, he's another artist up north. He's done work for Ocus, uh, Senzar, most, re- most recently. He's, like, a dark Celtic artist. And um, me and him are talking about doing some exhibitions, which Jim Fitzpatrick is also going to be a part of. Have you actually met him yet, Jim? I haven't, um... Yeah. You know, Erica bought me some prints from him at Christmas and he sent us um, some nice personalized stuff. It's kind of like, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a fan, you know, so I'd love to just, I'm always saying I'm just, I'll just write him a letter. Yeah, I do. But I'm just nervous because like, um, he's my, you know, he's my idol in many ways. So, um, I don't know, I'm kind of nervous about that, funnily enough. Yeah. So I will, eventually. Cool. Um, but yeah, I really, I want that to be a bigger part of my art because um, it's something that I'm growing more passionate. You know, when you're young, you watch um, American TV and you have this twisted view of how Ireland isn't cool and you want to move to New York City and bullshit, la, la, la. And then you get older and you realize, well, I mean, it's the whole world wishes they, they lived here. Yeah, it's under your nose. It's all here, you know, yeah. just go 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 swim in a lake this mm. summer. Go swim in a lake once this summer and tell me yeah. that that doesn't change your, your life you know, yeah. for the better. Um, or, or read an old Celtic um, mythological story or get a, a book on the stories and read it to your kids and put your kids in the Grail Skull and... We have a beautiful culture here that's, that people have systematically tried to destroy because they're intimidated by it. And it's up to us to keep it alive. Yeah. But but keep it alive and modernize it enough that it's 
you know attractive to a young person's mind yeah you, you, know? can, you can kind of get to get to them there's better outlets for for your work to be discovered actually yeah you know i've done um some kids books as well actually i'm working on the second one at the moment with my one of my oldest friends lona conti she's an amazing person um she's battled i wouldn't say drug addiction but like like bad drug use and different things like that and she had a dark enough history and um she's used it all to get clean and empower herself and now her whole thing is about empowering young people teaching them that self-love is a good thing it's not like this thing you should be ashamed of to be proud of yourself and to love mm -hmm. yourself um so she started doing classes um people should check it out it's called chill the bean that's um the thing she's using at the moment we released a book called i love me for kids great success how would people find that neeson's or waterstones yeah, you can get it, it in a couple of places you can get it online i believe it's in a couple of easons around the country maybe some independent bookshop okay. bookshops um and we're working on the second one and it's all about you know the mental mental illness that we've gone through as as young people you know what mm. i mean um and that's the harsh reality of it and now we have the capacity as people to turn that into something creative that can help a young person not fall into those traps brilliant so that's you know as you get older it's less about just drawing weird pictures of skulls and it's more about why am I drawing this weird picture of a skull? Like, what yeah. does it say? What can it do for the world? Um, that's, you know, <laughs> just make the fucking place better. Make this fucking world better for us all to live in. True. To create something new. True. That'll inspire or do something. Yeah. You know? So, just to end this, um, have you any shout outs? Um, Zahora are playing on March the 17th in Chine in Dublin with Can Great Stag. And yeah, tombs, grey sag and tombs. Yeah, yeah two so of if you're around, get to that on April the twentieth. You're playing Fred Zeppelin's with Conjure Baylor and Oppenheim. Is that yeah, right? Oppenheim, yeah, yeah. We're playing in um, yeah, Conjure, great band from the UK. They're really um, you know, trailblazing at the moment. So they're they're definitely coming out to that gig. It's the last time you'll see a band like them in um, it's the last time you'll see them in a small venue like that. I think. Um, we've also got Hammerfest at the end of March over in Wales with Tent on Slug. Or um, Tenton Sog on that, yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah. And then we've got a couple of gigs in May in Limerick and Cork. And um with your Paranoid Beast promotions as well. Yeah, Paranoid Beast um are running a gig in Cork. And um, we've got a gig coming up soon with God Alone and Paranoid Beast. We're gonna start filming all the gigs. Okay. We wanna really like create a place here in Cork where when band com bands come and play, when they go away a week later there's a proper edited and recorded live video of the gig so that's so such a help for them yeah man because you know everybody's running to england and metal to the masses and running over and trying to we need to leave ireland to be successful you're like look guys let's take the spotlight and let's turn it back here and let's show the world what's going on and obviously video is the medium that's being yeah. pushed by all the social media you know, NPR Tiny Desk Concerts, the K-Pit that Kerrang are doing. People might have seen Mastodon on that lately. That stuff really connects. You see that, you're like, shit, it's like I'm at that gig. Yeah. You know, so we want to do that here in Fred Zeppelin's in Cork. It's the Brilliant. oldest metal venue. Um, this Saturday coming is the first one with God Alone. And uh, we were just in there today actually setting up projectors and trying to turn Fred's into like just something different. I saw, I saw the, the Triscoll one with God Alone. And the yeah, yeah. It looked amazing. Yeah, so that's the thing, you know. So, um, yeah, lots of gigs, lots of gigs that aren't announced for Zora that we can't announce yet. Okay. We've got a lot of English festivals coming up throughout the year. Um, and then we're releasing the album later this year, um, late autumn kind of buzz. Brilliant. So, yeah. So, Colin, thanks for coming to The Metal Cell. Pleasure having Richie. you. Yeah, man, absolutely. And for all our listeners out there, check out The Metal Cell podcast on Facebook and Instagram and email me at themetalcell at gmail.com. Over and out.